what's up and welcome back to nostalgia pod giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture my name is pat sheen joined by my trusty co-host dave martin he'll spit on you if you mess up his movie swagger dave what's going on man uh victory baby <laughs> let's we finally, go we finally get to talk about the don't worry darling uh I don't know, hubbub, I guess I'll call it. There's a lot to dig into there, and the movie's finally here, so we finally get to talk about it. Um, we're also going to be covering a couple of uh, music releases, a TV show, and another movie today, so hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Before we jump too far into it, though, Dave, I just wanted to check in in with you. I mean, we've had some, some up and down content weeks, some weeks where it's really light, some weeks when it's not so light. How do you feel about this week? Hey, you know, things come, things go. There's a lot of stuff to come on the on the docket, no worries. Had time this week to experience the Avatar re-release in theaters in anticipation of Avatar The Way of the Water. And let me tell you, the return to Pandora was sweet. <laughs> yeah, it beat Don't Worry Darling at the box office this weekend. So. Worldwide it did, yes. People wanted to see it, apparently. Um, I was not one of those people. I'm not like stoked to go back and be with the Navi, but yeah. we'll talk about that when you we get on the wrong it. side of history, my guy. I, I'm not on any side. I'm just I'm just existing. Uh mm-hmm. anyways, Dave, why don't we jump into something a little smaller uh than the Avatar franchise? That's gonna be Blood Orange's recent EP, four songs. Um <laughs> We haven't talked about Blood Orange much other than, you know, talking about him scoring movies. That's been what most of his career has been about recently, at least most of his releases. Um, he's been doing some touring, uh, doing a lot of like orchestral type stuff. Last time we really spoke about him was 2019. Wow, yeah. I, can't, I can't believe it's been 2019 when it, was, it wasn't even an actual album mixtape was. Uh, Angel's Pulse. Yes, Angel's Pulse. I was going to say Negro Swan. That was the last album Album we talked about. Uh, so now it's 2022. We get these four songs, including Jesus Freak Later, which is kind of like the single from this, if you will. What'd you think of this four song EP? Anything stand out? Yeah, I mean, it sounded like another Blood Orange release. Nothing too much to take home about it, I think, but still notable to talk about and think about blood orange music when it does come out because as you said it is a bit infrequent these days and also as you said dev Hines is a significant figure in music culture in in new york culture in general you know so he's always around he's always up to stuff and it's almost like a special treat it's like oh he kind of like went back to his day job for a second for us and dropped four <laughs> songs how nice of him yeah, that that's exactly the way to look at it. I mean, he he does a lot of producing and writing. Of, I mean, from Caroline Polachek to Haim to uh, Kylie Minogue, like he's doing a lot of stuff. So he's he's active, um, and like we mentioned, doing a lot of like scores for movies. But yeah, it's it's great to get him making music. And I gotta say, like these four songs were like two two hits and two misses for me. I'd say. I think the middle two, something you know and wish, I just didn't. I, they just felt like sleepy to me, and they just didn't really grab me at all. But the first one, Jesus Freak Lighter, has that like 
really like sped up percussion uh tip tapping its way throughout the whole thing really enjoy that and he's just like gliding over the uh, guitar the whole time which i think is great and then relax and run with uh, erica de and eva tolkien i'm not really sure who they are but those three together just sound really beautiful on that track mm. and it's like the most clear he sounds on the album and i just really like enjoy hearing him not as like washed into the the sonics which uh, so uh, i don't know i thought those those two really stood out and we t- whenever we talk about these eps i feel like our takeaways are always like if we can find like one or two songs on this that get us excited for whatever is bigger to come, that's usually a good sign that this artist is moving in a good direction. So I was happy to listen to this. Yeah, I wonder if this came out because Dev has been opening up for Harry Styles during his 15 show run at Madison Square Garden this year. He's kind of like getting himself back out there after performing in front of thousands of people for, you know, like a month. Um, who can say? What yeah, an interesting, interesting duo. Like, who would have ever picked Blood Orange to open up for Harry Styles? Yeah, I'd have to imagine it's because he's local more than anything. But um, I'm sure they are now acquainted, and you never know. It it would be cool to hear Harry on some more uh, interesting production. We'll leave it at that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I agree about the songs that work and and songs that don't. I think ultimately the Blood Orange music is often pretty lo-fi, so sometimes those vocals just don't do a whole lot for you because they are understated and i think wish in particular it's just really sleepy dreary stuff you know it's just not not what i'm into uh relax and run though i think you really nailed it there like the vocals are really awesome from dev Mm -hmm. and the rest of that group like people are just kind of sliding around now and it sounds cool the beat the drums specifically are really great and then on Jesus Freak Larry, the guitar is really cool too. So, yeah, it's kind of cool to hear like him like turn it on hmm. as a performer in the way he does on songs like that. Because the other side of the coin is when a song like Wish happens, and it's like, yeah, this is just not really conceived well enough for me. But like sometimes it's just like, man, like even though he's not like a flashy singer at all, it's like it it all kind of works sometimes. Like in, those, yeah. in that that kind of beautiful way. Yeah, he's like, I just moved more and more into composing. And I I think you can just tell even on the songs that don't work on this, how he's really playing with like layering and how he produces songs and kind of clicks things together to get a certain like feeling across. It's it's really impressive. And I, I just really want him to continue to be putting himself out there with some of these artists that we really love. I mean, we kind of talk about how different producers have their moments and Antonov had his moment. I'd really, it'd be really cool if Dev gets to like really helm and produce some full projects with some uh, some cool artists. Maybe a Caroline Polachek fully produced Blood Orange album would be cooler. Um, so we'll see. I also would just love to get a regular album from him. It seems about, yeah, he's usually every like two to three years. So he's probably going to be putting out something bigger soon, hopefully. But why don't we move on from Dev Hines with a small, you know, more lo-fi, more, more toned down album. Sudan Archives <laughs> dropping Natural Brown Prom Queen. And, you know, it, in contrast to Dev, Sudan Archives is like super produced, but in like maybe the best way possible. I would... I wasn't expecting that we talk about this. And this is a few weeks old, we should say, came out on September. I believe it was like September 9th, maybe. 
Yes. Um, so earlier in the in the month. But I heard a lot of buzz around this, and notably Pitchfork gave it a nine. So I was like, you know, usually Pitchfork gives it a nine. That they think something about this is pretty inventive and interesting. So I at least want to check it out. And I'm really glad I did because, as someone that was not familiar at all with the work of Brittany Parks, um, I was really blown away listening to this album, and it just like now feels like she's somebody in my life that I really am excited to hear more music from. And actually, as we talk about like collaborations for Blood Orange, I would love to I'd love for her and Blood Orange to work together because I think that there's like a lot of potential there for Deb to really mentor her. But she doesn't really need it because I think I think this album is absolutely great. What do you think? Yeah, totally. You know, um, when I saw the she signed the Stones Throw Records, I was like, oh, that actually kind of makes sense because I familiar with that label mostly for Anderson Pack and Knowledge's No Worries duo being signed there. Yeah, it's one of those albums that has so much going on and is so all over the place, but in like the best way. It's not a demerit. It's it's a positive. There's so much going on in so many different genres and types of songs on the album. And all those different songs are really cool. It's a bit still a bit long. Like not not everything is like, you know, amazing but i think because there's so much cool execution on this like it's just really exciting and definitely uh, an album that would reward multiple listens for sure yeah and just just like looking up a little bit of her background she studied ethnomusicology in college and it really comes across in this because i feel like this is an incredibly expansive album that tries to bring in so many different genres and she tries on so many different cadences and flows, deliveries, singing styles, and it all kind of works. Although it's like you kind of never know where a song's going to take a left turn or, or if it's going to kind of stay on the same sort of beat, change up quickly, move on to the next song. It, it all kind of keeps you on your toes the whole time. But like you said, it's like, it's a lot in the best way possible. It, it's kind of it almost feels hard to like pick out like a singular track because I feel like they're all so different from each other. But are there any that really stood out to you? Oh, yeah, totally. I think there's a ton, really. Um, NBPQ Topless, I really yes. like. The beat's crazy. She kind of raps on that. There's a switch up halfway through. And here, a violin outro because that is kind of her roots that's as, her staple, a, yeah. as a violinist and you, you hear less violin on this than from her first album from what i understand but you can still kind of hear that as like her trademark uh, a bunch of other songs are like too i really liked uh oh my god brit which yeah. is just like a fire like rap trap song like i saw a lot of comments about how like sudan archives and rego nasty should link up after this one yes but, like that you, you can get like like straight up trap and a song like that in an awesome way on the same album where you get, you know, kind of like indie pop and, and, and R&B. It's like all, it, there's so much going on. Yeah, uh, I, I'm really glad you said the Rico Nasty thing, because when I was listening to that, I was like, I don't know if there's another artist I would compare to Sudan other than maybe Rico, because like just the the risks that they take and the like formlessness of the music, and you really never know where it's going. I could definitely uh, see the comparison there. Um, yeah, you know, there's so many like 
cool flourishes even in the songs i don't love there's like something i was like oh that's a really cool production choice or like wow bringing in that like those strings that really made a lot of sense like in the first one homemaker there's this part where i'm pretty sure they bring in like a harp like midway midway through for a couple of like strings and flourishes and i was like oh man like that's a really cool choice and just so out of left field but really added something um yeah just i think nbpq is definitely one of my standouts but um probably my one of my favorites is actually the last one hashtag 513 like more of like a boom bap hip-hop like mf doom sounding track almost but it kind of brings in some of those like um like more worldly influences to the songs like some chanting at times there's like a really cool bass line through it that i thought was really great and just very funky um freakalizer i thought was a great track um and just like (laughs) she she gets really like really sexy at the end of this album right um freakalizer uh do your thing milk like, me milk me she's just like <laughs> going for it at the end and i was all for like horny pseudo uh sudan archives i was like okay i'm, I'm mm-hmm. with it i i mean it's hard to really i think dig into all of the album because like i said there's so many flourishes and almost every song has something but it's just super inventive and like really a pleasure to listen to yeah i completely agree i think like i said definitely rewards spending a lot of time with it um Selfish Soul, I liked quite a bit too. Mm-hmm. I thought the vibe in that one was really nice. Um, it's already done, even kind of short, kind of like understated, but I like that one too. Like, yeah, I, I, I think what it stood out to me most too was just like her ability as a as a vocalist, as a performer, to like serve all these different genre masters at once, and like always kind of crush it, no matter what kind of song she was making. And then, of course, on top of that, all these songs have such like layer production. There's tons of switch ups yeah. and flourishes, as you said. So there's just so much to dig into here, and definitely makes her like a really, uh, I think, exciting and important artist to continue to watch. Completely agree. Just wrapping up real quick, one last thought: DDLY is like just a pure electronic dance song. It's like you get this like just a few tracks after you get a song like "Oh My God, Brit," and you know, like copycat which is like a a bit more of like an r&b song it's like really a just expansive record so i can't can't recommend it enough uh, i hope but hope we're talking about it more as the year comes to a close but uh if you're on spotify follow our nostalgia best of 2022 playlist uh, where we're adding all the tracks that we enjoy from the year um we're gonna move off music now though dave to talk about a show you are highly anticipating Andor. I was I was anticipating it too. I think like the vibe around Andor was just this was going to be a more mature, more adult, more gritty Star Wars story finally. And I think we felt a little bit like some of the Star Wars shows have hedged a little bit away from that like grittiness, still trying to kind of like play it down the middle, be fan friendly, and ultimately Star Wars is supposed to be for children and adults. So that makes sense. So it's exciting to get something like Andor that's been billed as this like adult story did you feel like these first three episodes delivered i did for sure i had a lot of hype anticipation for andor as a big fan of rogue one and the tone that rogue one sets as well the most adult of the disney star wars films easily and also the 
one of, if not the best received, just I think has the highest general approval rating of all the Disney Star Wars films, Rogue One does. And kind of wild to think how long it's been since Rogue One came out back in 2016. Uh, and 2016, it's been a minute. But to have a Star Wars series that, unlike The Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan Kenobi, Andor was not primarily shot on the volume in Manhattan Beach. Andor was shot at Pinewood Studios in England and had a lot more practical, real sets created and location shoots on top of that. And I think that goes a long way and like having that visual language come across as a bit more mature. The volume is amazing and I think is kind of unparalleled in what it can give to us in terms of making TV in a financial model that makes sense but still wowing you. Like the volume's great. But to get something a little bit different, the way we're getting visually with Andor is awesome. And then, of course, they actually got Tony Gilroy back to make more Star Wars. Tony Gilroy, of course, one of the most celebrated screenwriters in the last 30 years, whose official contributions to Hollywood are tremendous, of course, such as the Bourne trilogy and Michael Clayton, but also the stuff that he's done that is a little less credited, his straight-up ghostwriting and script doctoring, and the official script doctoring he did for Rogue One itself, where he basically saved the movie. And it's a bit wild to just reflect on that again, where Gareth Edwards' Rogue One, we have no idea what that really was, right? Yeah, the Rogue One teaser, that's about it. But Rogue One was significantly changed to the Tony Gilroy kind of jumping in and figuring out what this what to save right and in his press he's talked about how he doesn't have like true reverence for star wars and a lot of people he brought in to work on this show aren't the same way they're just like really good writers and good creators of film and tv and kind of bring that vibe to a, a show you're building towards adults i think is really cool because as much as we love dave filoni and john favreau they are like star wars dorks in the best yes. way possible. And it's great. And we love that for them. But this is a little different. And I think the fact that we can get something that's a little different of a vibe is great. And yeah, I think even format wise too, it's a bit intriguing too. 12 episode season, that's a longer run. And it's not nearly as episodic as you'd expect. These episodes aren't ending on like direct grace notes. There's We, we saw three episodes with this premiere. It definitely felt like a one singular arc we saw. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like natural breaks. Like, I just love how like different it's making me feel. And then as a hardcore Star Wars fan, yeah, sign me up to like watch the birth of the rebellion. Let's go. Right. So what what you just said is exactly what had my hype level up is I think this is finally them exploring a part of the story that we've just kind of wanted, you know, uh, I think that's also why you know, I think that's also why some of the later films of the the trilogies the skywalker trilogies really just like fell flat because it just felt like we were going back to the well back to the well back to the well and some of the tv shows i think have felt like okay we're exploring some different things that's why people love the mandalorian it's something totally different it's exploring parts of the world that people have wanted to explore it's exploring parts of the lore you want to explore and so to finally like see how this rebellion began like who were the people at the ground floor who were finally like putting this into motion I-, I think it's just really just exciting and like you know you're basically making like a spy um you know adventure thriller like yeah that sounds incredible sign me up so 
really uh, interesting. And then obviously you have Diego Luna back as Cassian Andor. Um, you know, I think a character that was really a standout from Rogue One, although pretty much every every character in the Rebel uh, cast for that was was a standout. And then you had Mads just showing out too. So just mm-hmm. an insane cast. And Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, that's right. Like Krennic. Yeah, just insane. Um, and and you got a couple of like other like decently high profile actors, and then of course Stellan Skarsgård and Fiona Shaw, kind of bringing the like the mm-hmm. weight, the uh, I don't know experience to it. And it feels like there's a formula here for success, and I think they really pull it off. Um, the first couple episodes I think are are good. I, I don't know if I would say that I like loved them. I think the second episode in particular, I, I felt was a little bit like almost kind of like a bridgey episode and it probably could have been mm-hmm. just two episodes if you just kind of condense them down sure. a bit. But I think overall the, the feel of being in this show, the very beginning, how can you not think of Blade Runner? You know, especially even from like the way that they like shoot it with like the neon lights, the angles, like the gritty, like back alleys of this, like, you know, intergalactic world. Very cool. You get some amazing set pieces that that scene at the end of episode three where all the hooks are swinging and falling. Yes, like the just chains, yeah, absolutely incredible visuals. And I think you really kind of get the the sense of the world where Cassian is this like piece of shit, basically, who just is like two timing kind of a thief fucking his friends over. But he still is beloved by this town. And like they all mm-hmm. kind of rally around him and like all the political stuff. I, I thought a lot of that stuff really worked for me. Yeah. So those are the, the highlights for sure. It's also nice to kind of be with like a true rogue. But lest we forget, the most popular Star Wars character is Han Solo, a scoundrel. Like, yeah, Diego Luna murders someone <laughs> in the first episode. Like, we're not pulling any punches here. It's great. <laughs> and the, the Gilroy has talked to himself. There's going to be a body count on the series, which makes sense because the rebellion getting going, uh, we're like five years before Yavin at this point, like the, the rebellion had all these like cells and stuff, but like nothing was organized until the very end there. And it, it's going to be bloody. And I think that's really appealing. You know, we haven't seen her yet, but, uh, Genevieve O'Reilly is reprising her role as Mon Mothma that she debuted in Revenge of the Sith, and then reprised briefly in Rogue One. We're going to kind of see the political side of uh, the rebellion's genesis as well. You know, nice little call back to A New Hope. Remember uh, when they're still talking about the Senate before the Senate just gets dissolved, right? Well, Mon Moth is going to try and work it in the Senate. You know, we're going to see that. I think the Stellan Skarsgård figure coming in in episode three and like having him be the, I think, connective tissue between Cashin and we assume. Mon Mothma and other rebel leadership like very excited to, to see that you know uh, I agree that one and two are kind of like almost like episode one A and B I did really enjoy though like the kind of brief flashbacks about childhood Cassian, Cassian just because like it's quite simple but like j- just kind of seeing the visual of him in this kind of like like lo- like Peter Pan like Lonely Boys troop we yeah. assume due to that mining disaster they reference, like maybe all their parents died in that or something. Not really sure, but that's probably the guess. And then kind of seeing how he uh, gets adopted more or less by Fiona Shaw in her younger years. <laughs> and I feel like they really did a good job of 
developing that bond quite quickly with limited screen time before yeah. they uh, get separated at the end of three. And I mean, heck, even like just kind of being with Fiona Shaw's droid in that flashback where you see that droid kind of like more functional and has like better like uh, power abilities and stuff. And then like <laughs> in the present day, the droids like, you know, kind of glitching and stuff. Like, I, I love that. I thought that was another like amazing like droid creation too. Or like mm -hmm. that immediate personality kind of brought me back to Wally from a visual perspective. Yes. Like, love that. And yeah, I think um, more than anything, th this first arc we're set on a, I believe, Ferric it's called. It's like a mid-rim planet. Mm -hmm. Just like everyone in like Cashman's immediate orbit, right? Like the people he knows, his friends or his colleagues or the people he owes money, whatever it is, it kind of feels like a real place, you know? Like it really feels like a like a backwater, I think, in, in yeah. a cool way. And like all those supporting characters kind of come in in varying degrees. In episode three, once the, the the Imperials arrive and like the set pieces start, that was really cool. Just you mentioned the, the chains, right? That's like an amazing visual. The stuff with the the guy in the clock tower banging the the hammers mm -hmm. to tell time, really nice touch. And then even when like when shit's popping off, everyone in town is like making noise, making rattles to like kind of sound the alarm and intimidate. So I thought that was like really cool. It just it felt it felt real, you know, and like in a way where like you know I think Obi Wan Kenobi might have cut some corners uh, on Tatooine mm -hmm. a little bit with that. And we talked about that series, of course. Check that review out, but. I just really liked how they kind of really made it feel like a real place with real real characters, like real relationships and stuff. And they did it with pretty uh, brisk runtime. And then I'm also quite intrigued by the, the Imperial side of things, too, that we got uh, mm -hmm. uh, brought into as well through that uh, Kyle Solar character. Yeah, I'm interested to see like what's to come as his superior comes back from trying to like you know, downplay the the crime in the city and obviously how this is going to fall in his face and whatever turn he makes. Yeah. Um, Just definitely, try hard. <laughs> definitely a try hard. But like it, I thought it was really fun to see the dynamic between like that, like, I don't, I don't even know what his name was, the little Scottish guy. Who yeah, was he was the awesome, police. wasn't he? he what, what a ball of like energy, a scene stealer for sure. And like him getting his men all excited and then you see you know kyle stiller's character come in and just like not know how to give a speech not know how to rile the guys up his name is cyril cyril cam yep. um I, I thought it was like really well done just kind of shows like this guy's like a loser like trying to like mm -hmm. compensate for something obviously but i think he's gonna get in too deep i wonder if he ends up as part of the resistance eventually um or how that yeah. goes so i can't imagine he's the, the heavy for the whole season no, there's another Imperial figure, a female character coming in that we know. Um, gotcha. Yeah, it's also kind of funny to me, too, is they're not just like straight up like Imperial in a certain sense. They're kind of like a like a local like corporation that like are agents of the Empire and basically like enforce the Empire's will on their behalf. It's like yeah. they're almost like removed in that sense. They're like that like lesser. Mm -hmm. And yet you have uh, Cyril just been like, no, like this is our job. This is our purpose. And who knows? Maybe he'll find purpose with the rebellion. Who can say? Or maybe he'll get off in a few episodes because we know that we're gonna run up the the bloodshed on this show too. Who can say? Um, I, I loved in in the in episode three when uh, the gunship crashes because the locals like chained it up with like a big heavy piece of garbage or something and just crashed. That was cool. Yeah, just how like 
this town, it was like quite credible how this town had completely disoriented these dudes and they were just like so fucked up and they're like, they're everywhere. Like we're, they basically were saying how they were fucked because they just had like no idea what was going on when really it was like only Cashin and yeah, uh, Skarsgård who were like truly like fighting them. Dave, I gotta be honest though. Fuck Tim, right? Yeah. Terrible character. Well, he's gone. So Steve yeah, Tim. Tim Carlo, played by James McArdle. Uh, any other characters that you really liked? I, I think for me, uh, Bix really stood yes. out. Adria Aryona, Ar- Ar- I believe is yep. how you pronounce it. I thought she was really great. I'm excited to see more of her moving forward. Yep, totally. And um, okay, so Denise Gao is the one that plays the female Imperial coming up. So that'll be gotcha. nice. Another another uh, another side. I, I'm, I'm sure she's going to come in once word of this mishap goes up the chain. Um, and of course, we're going to see Forrest Whitaker reprising his role as Saw Guerrero from Rogue yeah, One. Yeah. That'll be interesting. Um, memorable ass, memorable part of Rogue One before he meets his demise, of course. So, yeah, I think just I'm really struck with the tone. I'm really struck with the production values. I'm really struck with the character work that's been done in a short amount of time. So, you know, am I expecting this to be like a monumental series from a plot perspective? No, of course not. It's still a prequel prequel to Rogue mm-hmm. One. It's a prequel to A New Hope. We, we we know the general beats, but I think just kind of being street level in this way, r- removed from the force completely, and just like being with a bunch of desperate people trying to like maybe come together to make a, make a difference in their world. Familiar beats again, but you know, that that's what's so appealing about the Rebels' characters, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm all in for sure. And we know that this has a two season 24 episode arc planned it'll be going back into production later this year to start season two and wouldn't be shocked if that's all we get you know i mean tony goodwise a busy guy he probably doesn't want to be attached to this for long but the fact that they have him show running for two seasons i think is such a such a get you know yeah. after he completely saved their ass with rogue one to actually get him back again to be like hey, if you wanted me to do a show this is how i would do it and they're like can you do it and he actually said yes like pretty exciting pretty awesome but well, th- this is also how you do it, right? You let creators make the shows they want to make. So uh, I-, I think they've learned some lessons for sure. Or at least I hope they have. Um, right. We'll see. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> you ready to move on to movies? Yeah, I think the last note on that is maybe Lucasfilm was more comfortable with this because they've already worked with, with Tony. Him. Yeah. You would hope, though, that that principle applies more generally. But I think we got to see that play out a little bit more. So oh, I-, I hope so. Uh, let's Let's switch gears, though, and talk about some some things on the big screen we're gonna start with see how they run movie we weren't able to get to last week but wanted to follow up on um yeah, directed by tom george who i just a director i don't know anything about to be honest I was looking up i was like man this movie feels very familiar to me and i couldn't put my thumb on it until i think like i guess maybe like 30 minutes in i was like ah this feels like like a Wes Anderson movie crossed with like a Knives Out movie, you know, like it it was just like a whodunit, but it was like, we're going to just put the Wes Anderson touches onto this. And I thought it was like, okay, you know, it pretty much just left being like, yeah, this was like enjoyable at parts, but other parts just kind of like lost my attention. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Overall for a whodunit, it was fun. Yeah, I agree. At the end of the day, the whodunit, the mystery film format is a tried and true genre for a reason it's just generally fun to be with but i think the kind of 
overt reverence to Agatha Christie, the mystery goat, after all. Yeah. To have like such blatant reverence for her because this is literally about one of her plays in real life. Like these are some real 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 life people in this story. Like you can't help but think about Knives Out, which was not as literal of an Agatha Christie homage homage, but everything else was super indebted to that, but it was still original, you know? Yeah. I feel like for this it was just like, eh, you're kind of trying to do like the wink at the audience thing that Knives Out nailed, but it's not as effective this time around. And mm-hmm. yes, you kind of dress it up with some like Wes Anderson like film flourishes, but yeah, and characters, and- yeah, char- character quirks and stuff. But it's yeah. just not quite as satisfying. So, so one to check it out, of course. Searchlight Pictures film in theaters. This one after they had all those Searchlight movies come out in Hulu in the summer, kind of a weird strategy still but yeah i want to check it out obviously sam rockwell saoirse ronan david Oello, yeah. like you got some big big people in this so it's obviously worth worth the watch for sure but yeah i think just like the plot never truly grabbed me like the whole mystery of it all i just mm-hmm. i think some of the character work like seeing the scenes was was fun to be with because you got some good actors here but yeah i think the whole like it coming together as like a, a meta piece didn't really land as well as they probably hoped it would yeah, and you know, you even get Adrian Brody at the beginning of this, right? And he's he's doing the Adrian Brody, but like in a pretty like charming way, you know. Obviously, he, they're uh, they're abroad, and he's this American abroad type guy who's really laying out like how these whodunits are always set up the same way, and it's always the least likable character who gets killed first, blah blah blah, and then he gets killed, and it's like this tongue in cheek like. Oh, yeah, look at like us winking at you while we set this movie up in the way that we're just telegraphing. But I, I still think the, the opening's like pretty charming. And then you get Sam Rock- Rockwell coming in and he's just kind of like bland to me, you know, in a lot of the film. I just didn't really find his character like that engaging. I didn't really find no. his performance that engaging, especially playing opposite Sersha, who's like totally going for it being totally upbeat and quirky and ridiculous as this like young constable trying to like make her way as a detective and it's like i it just like didn't the the dynamic there didn't really work for me i guess i agree i could i kept thinking back to like who might have served that rockwell character role better and i kept landing on edward norton who (laughs) yeah like i was like man like you know, if this was self-serious, he can nail it too. But also, like, I don't know, like, you'd expect more out of Sam Rockwell too, who has done all kinds of tone in his career. But like, maybe it's just the way this character is written. He's kind of this like curmudgeon-y, like dick, basically. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. He's just not that fun to be with. But at least Sersha just, she's obviously a very effervescent, amazing performer, as we know. But just, I don't know. Just like, I still love her accent. Like, I just love listening yeah. to her speak. I don't know. <laughs> I know she could narrate anything and I would I would enjoy listening to it. Um, yeah, I I agree. Actually, at first, um, I, I was like, because because of the mustache, I was like, is this? And then when I when he started talking, I was like, oh, no, it's, a, it's Sam Rockwell. But I did think it was Edward Norton for a second. I was like kind of excited just because also like if you're going to go for the Wes Anderson vibes, like just lean into the same like actors like <laughs> you do you have, have Adrian Brody here and Sersha and so, Sersha. Yeah, just lean into it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and you know, as as you talked about with like the the setup and just like how things work, it it felt a bit like meandering at points. Like there's that whole like a section where they think or Constable Stalker thinks 
Inspector Stopper, Sam Rockwell's character is the one that killed the the guy. And like I got like a little bit lost as to like how they totally got there. I don't know. It just felt like there was like it wasn't grabbed my attention. And then like the twists and turns, I just started like kind of getting confused. I was like, oh, I don't know how how much I'm following with this. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, it was fine. It's like entertaining. If you it's like 90 minutes too, which I thought was great. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, this is perfect. Like you could throw this on when it hits VOD and like spend an afternoon just like watching this eating popcorn, having a drink and you're like you'll enjoy yourself. It probably just won't be a movie that you really like find yourself like recommending a lot or going back to a lot. Right. So, anyways, I think we're ready to move on to the movie of the fall. It's it's finally here, Dave. <laughs> I have so many thoughts about this, but I guess like maybe the question to start with is there's been so much hubbub about this movie. A lot of drama. We finally got it. Do you think the movie is actually worth talking about all that much? Mm. I do. I definitely yeah. do. Are we worried, darling? We are. We definitely <laughs> are. Uh, obviously, the drama has taken on a life of its own separate from the film. And the film is, uh, I think, very up and down, ultimately doesn't land, um, has a ineffective twist. And we'll get into all of that. And well, I think why the movie doesn't work and those pieces that don't work and pieces that do work are all quite interesting because there's a lot of like important pieces going on in this movie and people that are... I think important to pay attention to in film, but yeah, it's um, it's one of those fascinating messes, and that would have, that would have been the case even if we didn't have uh, the legacy of this movie behind the scenes and then in front of our faces, starting at the Venice Film Festival, right? Like, yeah. there's been a lot going on, some of it quite ugly, you know, like the Shia LaBeouf stuff uh, side of it, but um, you can't help but uh, watch, you know, it's a, it's like the burning car. We're we're all kind of rubbernecking with this one. And uh, I, I guess maybe just like lay out the the drama. And I'm going to see if I can do this without forgetting a piece. Like pretty much like back in the summer, they started doing press for this. So probably like July-ish. And people noticed that Florence P was really not pushing this movie right. at all. And there was the like... The star these, of the film. Yes. There were these like breadcrumbs that like maybe she wasn't so happy during filming. And more and more starts to come out about how the, the production had these issues. And it seems like Florence Pugh and Olivia Wilde didn't really get along so great. Seems like maybe Florence Pugh was upset that Harry Styles was brought on when Shia LaBeouf was originally cast to play opposite her. Um, uh, a bit Jack. of an acting talent downgrade. Uh, <laughs> sh- sh- uh, other issues with Shia aside, like, you know, I do get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and, you know, and then all the stuff comes out about Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde becoming paramours and all the stuff with mm-hmm. Olivia Wilde's relationship ending bring all of this into the was it venice there venice, venice yeah film beginning film festival. of uh, beginning of the month and it's just a complete complete utter mess at the venice film festival florence Pugh is just completely eating up the red carpet but like not doing any press related to the movie harry styles is talking about how this movie is such a movie because it's a movie on the big screen it makes you want to watch a movie and it's like what the fuck are you yeah, talking, talking about? about how he doesn't know how to act you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know doesn't know what he's doing and like a kind of earnest manner but it's just like 
bro, you're not helping the cause right now. <laughs> <laughs> and and then of course the the video scene around the world of Chris uh, Chris Pine sitting down, Harry Styles approaching him during the premiere, and it looks like he spit on him. Honestly, as I've reviewed it more, I've come to the conclusion he actually just blew on him, like blew like like that, and I'm pretty sure that's what happened. But it it just it gave this whole life like oh did harry spit on chris pine like well, where's chris that? pine did have like an incredulous reaction at the right time too like spitgate is quite the uh zabruder film to study it's pretty funny yeah. so th- th- there's a, a lot there and recently reports came out that production was it was during covid there was a lot of stress around the production olivia wilde seemed very high stress during this she had like at, by this point there's a video that had come out where she called Florence Pugh like Miss Flo and insinuated that she was difficult to work with. Apparently, Olivia Wilde was telling cast and crew to be very careful and, you know, not getting COVID, not putting themselves at risk, basically quarantining. Meanwhile, she's out with Harry Styles at weddings being filmed by paparazzi. So there's a lot of like frustration, also like lack of direction, apparently from Olivia Wilde on set and Florence Pugh saying that she's like basically setting up shots and giving direction for film. A lot of back and forth coming to the head of where Florence Pugh says she just did not feel supported during this and did not want to do any press and worked out a deal with uh, the production company. With Warner's, Warner Brothers. So. so that brings us to the movie finally coming out. And the movie, I think, is is OK. Like, I, th- I think yeah. there's some parts of it I really, really liked. And there's some parts where I'm just kind of like left scratching my head and just I don't know why that like it just needed more fleshing out Mm -hmm. you know and there's some really nice touches and it's like i think very thought through in certain ways and then very like not like like half-baked in other ways and i was like yeah this could have used just a little bit more script doctoring i think but literally that's just what we got and dave i mean give me just your general thoughts on everything going on yeah no i agree with that and like if you want more i'm at like the behind the scenes drama we actually do have some like real reporting at this point, like uh, I think Chris Lee at Vulture has a really good piece where like he actually took stuff out after like running it by like NY Mag lawyers. He said so. It's like that's like pretty well sourced at this point. So the the info's out there. But yeah, with the film, like I think the reason I was interested in the movie from the get go is because it, this was the second directorial effort from Olivia Wilde. Booksmart was awesome. Her first film mm-hmm. it was an amazing teen comedy, hilarious. Beanie Feldstein, Caitlin Deaver were great. And he's like, okay, wow, Olivia Wilde switching to directing. New person to pay attention to. Good for her. That's very exciting. And then her next movie is going to have Florence Pugh and Shia LaBeouf. I mean, Harry Styles. And then you got Chris Pine and Gemma Chan. Yeah, sounds great. Very exciting. Oh, yeah. You and know, the trailers look great. They did. And, you know, I think it's the movie still looks good. I think I think it's well made. For the most part, it's well acted, but yeah, it, it, it just the script. Um, the script is weak. The second half of the movie really drags. The uh, second act, I think, is is quite slow. I think the first act is pr- pretty strong at setting things up, and then ultimately, once you get to that twist, once you get to like the the climax and like those final set pieces, it's like this just wasn't conceived. I think is in an intelligent enough manner to be a movie that is like a stealth genre film, mm-hmm. and it doesn't kind of stand out among some obvious comparison points of films of the past that really, uh, you know, I think jump out to people. Uh, the Stepford wives, of course, has been thrown mm-hmm. out a lot lately. Um, all kinds of stuff, really black mirror, I guess you could say. 
Um, yeah, and it's like, man, like I, I was pretty invested in that early, early setup, and I think, I don't know, man, if maybe if we had just kind of taken this whole twist out of it, because I think like the societal comment in it, it's just like very simple, very, I don't want to say very dated, but just like it's not really anything new. Which doesn't necessarily need to be the case either. I just don't think like it lands. Like the twist happens, and you're just like, "Oh, that's what was that's what was going on to here." Wow, that was not that satisfying. And I mean, I don't know. Is Harry Styles credible enough in in that in the true version of his character? I don't know. To be honest, like he's just a bit too handsome for that. But <laughs> yeah, I was with it in the first half, and I thought the atmospheric, you know, of a pretty victory project like 50s secret government town very obvious note of the manhattan project and mm-hmm. you know secret cities the government made testing for the military like really cool right and 50s ephemera you know seeing that in there it's like, mm-hmm. wow okay cool i'm with it i'm with it florence Pugh, is she losing her mind is kiki lane losing her mind it's like oh wow like all that that I, i'm with it and then the twist happens and like it just kind of like, loses me completely yeah, you know, the the twist in some ways, I think, is like, it, it's definitely where I had the biggest, like, confusion for me. And I I know that this is like, it's it, for sci-fi stuff, you just kind of have to, like, let this stuff go. Like, does the Matrix actually make sense? No. Yes, it does. But it does at the same time. Like, for me, it's like, okay, they're they're plugging in to this thing. They're going into this, like, internet world where these things can happen. Like, I get it. This, I just, like, I don't even, I've been stuck on the science of this for so long. I'm like, so is this, like, a group psychosis? Is this, like, a shared meta world of some sort? I don't even understand how this fucking works. I think that's what it is. But... I would just kind of, I just thought, I thought it was this kind of a weird thing because it's like these guys aren't incels because they're all literally married. <laughs> but what they actually wanted was to bring their marriage back to the 50s and make their wife a 50s housewife. It's like that that was what all these guys just figured out to do. And then Chris Pine seemed to rally them together with this kind of metaverse thing to basically kidnap their their wives and transport them back virtually it's like that's what you guys were up to <laughs> you guys are married like i don't know just that part was just kind of weird to me i was like like i, I don't know like also he's like seeing harry styles is like some like like loser like pc nerd like i don't know man you, you can make him have a beard and long hair but like it's still harry styles and it's still florence pew like <laughs> like it's a beautiful yeah. couple at the end of the day like i don't know i feel like they'll figure it out <laughs> <laughs> figure it out. yeah it's uh it, i mean that part definitely was like strange to me i i also was just a little bit confused and like like off put by some of the like ethical pieces of it too right so like in a lot of the movie you see them having sex relations but it's always harry you know in some way pleasuring florence so like hmm. is he like pleasuring her in real life is that how that's working because she's she never pleasures him but is in, in the real world, he's not able to go down on his wife. How is she keeping him sedated? How, how is she sedated this entire time? What What's happened? Is that what, what he was like squeezing into her mouth? She just needs water. Like, how is yeah. like the, the logistics oh, yeah, no. of this all? We, we don't know how it works. Insane. We don't know how it works at all. Insane. But um, 
I think also yeah. I, I don't I don't get the appeal of Frank. You know, other like what 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 you get of him is like he's this like elusive cult leader type guy, right? And yeah. then when when you flash to the twist, he's like putting out these podcasts that these people are finding, almost kind of like a Jordan Peterson type of like guy, right? right? Who gets this huge like following, charismatic, like, alternative thought guy. But like there, like I don't know, did did he really seem like that cool? You know, like right. I don't know. That's but, the thing. It's just it's just very underbaked as a twist. But it's like in the beginning when we don't know we're in some meta simulation. Oh, you know what? Chris Pine is the leader of the Victory Project. Very credible because Chris Pine can uh, chew scenery and yeah. oh just be, be be charming. It, it's more or less a one note thing, but it doesn't matter because Chris Pine is so good at like playing that note, and it makes sense that like he has rallied all these dudes to do the secret government work and mm-hmm. all the wives go along with it because like he's really good at motivating people yeah. and I, pine definitely quits himself well in a supporting role for sure yes um but yeah i mean i, I just think everything with the twist is underbaked and when you try and like think about what the twist is actually saying it's like is, is it, we're supposed to apply that to ourselves it's like or apply it to real life like i don't know it's just like it just doesn't seem that realistic it's like like the the, the threat you know, of women's rights and the threat of uh, onto females' role in society, you know, in the world of Andrew Tate and stuff like that. Like, I get it. Granted, I'm not actually sure if this is specifically what goes all the way. Like, I feel like that's some pretty fringe shit that, like, people mm-hmm. people that want to go back to the 50s, you know? Yeah, I I almost feel like it would have worked better, like you said, if maybe, like, there wasn't so much of a twist or if the twist was actually, like, they are all under some sort of like group hypnosis from like a cult leader of some sort, right? Or some group psychosis like that. And then Florence Pugh is like breaking out of it and like trying to like figure out like what actually happened. Like, I feel like that could have worked pretty well. And going back to your point about Chris Pine, the scene where he confronts her in the kitchen at that dinner party, just like the feeling on screen going from Harry and Flo in every scene to then Chris Pine just like looming as she's like cooking dinner the whole vibe of the movie completely shifts and you're just like wow these two actors are so seasoned and so talented and just have so much gravitas on screen and it just really like makes you I think realize like how like out of his depth Harry is playing oh, yeah. alongside these two and I, you know, I went with with my wife and she said, I think if Shia LaBeouf had made this movie, it's a completely different movie. It's so much more serious. It's so much heavier. And I, I think in a lot of ways she's right. But I don't know if, if Harry's like silliness to the movie actually like added much. I actually think it took me out of a lot of scenes. Yeah. Well, he's just, he just doesn't have enough notes, at least yeah. not yet, you know. And, and he's just virtually outclassed constantly by being in the presence of other, you know, real actors. You know, he's not really an experienced actor so it's not necessarily his fault it's just just the fact of the matter you know mm-hmm. apparently he's a little bit better in the amazon movie coming up later this fall my policeman we'll see but yeah you know i think he's definitely a weak link i think his accent work is very inconsistent i want it started to shine through later on and then they actually talk about how he's british and i was like oh well you you weren't trying to sound british beforehand you're actually trying to hide that so maybe they maybe they wrote that in later when they realized harry just wasn't good about speaking like an american accent so hilarious putting him right next to florence Pugh, his fellow brit who obviously is a real actor yeah and and eats up american accents so well like yep incredible 
Um, t- talk to me about like the parts about the beginning of the movie that you liked. Cause you said you were really digging the first act. Well, yeah, well, I, I, I just have like general intrigue about like secret cities and government towns mm-hmm. of that time. And it's like, and to me, I was more about invested. I was like, Oh, what are they working on? You know, it's like, is it just nukes? Is it something cool? Is that something more, uh, sci-fi, con- uh, uh, twisty that we'll find out later? No, actually, it's completely besides the point. You know, it's just not where the movie goes at all. But I don't know. Like, I just kind of like the idyllic town and everything, and like the way the all that '50s shit. Like, I thought that was a really cool setup. And then it's like, oh, something's not right. Let's find out what it is. And then they, they really drag their feet before they finally tell you what's not mm-hmm. right. And then when you find out what's not right, it leaves you a bit underwhelmed. But everything before that, I was like, man, this is kind of cool. And then once like Chris Pine shows up. And like, oh, even even Gemma Chan as his wife, yeah. pretty un- underbaked per- character. But like, even her, you know, she's like this steely resolve as the partner of the leader of the Victory Project. It's like, huh, I'm digging this. Yeah. And then it just goes in a completely different direction. <laughs> um, I definitely thought Gemma Chan just continues to assert herself as like probably one of the most underrated actresses. Like her presence on screen, she's first of all just like maybe the most beautiful actress in hollywood but like definitely when when she just like it comes into that ballet room like your jaw just kind of drops because you're just like she's just completely like commanding the scene without even like saying anything it's like really Mm -hmm. impressive or like even just the way like at the dinner with everybody she just kind of like asserts herself like so quietly like she's like yelling without actually yelling it's like really amazing um I i thought she was great i thought it was really a weird choice to like have Nick Kroll and Kiki Lane and just like give them like 10 lines in total. Yeah. Apparently Kiki Lane had a lot of scenes that were cut, cut. which makes sense because Kiki Lane's a great actor and a rising talent, very in demand and to have her basically do nothing. Yeah. It's one of the ensemble parts. It's a choice for sure. I actually didn't mind Kroll. You know, it's a bit of a, different flair but i don't know i like i feel like he still kind of fit the vibe as like you know he's just a different different kind of cat compared yeah. to uh harry styles you know that's fine <laughs> um definitely a different kind of cat for sure <laughs> uh we'll yeah. be talking about him in a few weeks um I, I really like timothy simons in this and you know i yep first of all shout out jonah it's it's pretty tough when you know he he literally in like one of the scenes is talking about like them having sex and like pleasuring each other and, and to not just think about the famous J. Jonah Jameson or no, not J. Jonah Jameson um, Jonah Ryan uh, yeah. quote eating so much pussy and shit and clits I was like literally thinking about that for the second half of the movie but I, I really actually thought he was great and like it brings like the same like eeriness that like Chris Pine's character does for most of the movie and then I mean he pretty quickly just like it's marked in the you know, second mm. half and you know stop her like it's just the cars just run into each other yeah. i don't know that was the, the car chase by florence on on the wheel there for real but the car chase was actually i thought really like cool i just like yeah. at that point i was like what is happening right. <laughs> well, it was a nice callback too to the way the movie starts too when you had that really cool visual of all the husbands leaving home yeah. in the morning all the wives sending them off in unison and they all drive out of town in their multicolored Chevelles yeah. and they go whipping across the desert to their secret workplace. Mm-hmm. And then it ends with Florence whipping across the same desert. I was like, I don't know. That was pretty cool. I think the movie looks good. 
you know like, oh yeah there's a lot of like really like tight scenes a lot of close-ups i think yeah. the way the camera moves is really great like wild has some nice flourishes as a filmmaker for sure yeah it's just it just it really was cryptish you know now i'll be interested to watch what happens with wild's career next given that you know i think some people are really pulling out the knives for her and at this point and like you know i think she's a male filmmaker with like some mild drama behind the scenes and the movie was kind of whatever it probably wouldn't be as people coming out as hard but given you know the jason sudeikis of it all people are just kind of and, and, and wild has put her foot in her mouth a few times already too not she's not blameless in all this but like I, I just hope nothing really gets in the way of her getting another chance because, like, yeah, I don't. I, I think there, there's definitely directing talent here between Booksmart and this, and like, yeah, maybe, maybe she needs um, a steadier hand at the screenplay side of things. She didn't write this movie, to be fair, but like, you know, I think all is not lost with Movie Wild. Obviously, Florence Pugh, Gemma Chan, Chris Pine—they're all certified as actors at this point. And Harry, Harry's in wait and see mode. You know, I mean, him having a bad, bad role or a mediocre perform, bad performance or mediocre performance is not a big deal to me. And honestly, kind of a good thing he was in it because it seems like his fans helped prop up this movie at the box office. Yeah, uh, in, in the Gen first Z weekend. crushed it for them. Yeah, so I'm not expecting this movie to leg out though because as an, it's ultimately an art house movie, and art house movies do not perform with bad reviews. This movie has bad reviews, to be clear. So <laughs> if you go on. Um... Rotten Tomatoes, which we obviously don't like follow their score as gospel, but it's like a 38% critic and like 80% audience score. So uh, definitely one of the more like polarizing movies between critics and fans that go on this. So, yeah, I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think people I think the, the movie for as much as it's been like, you know, critically panned is like way more entertaining than it you know has come across. In, right. Open criticism. Yeah. I agree. You know, I think it's it's definitely interesting to think about why it doesn't work, and like, yeah. and I think there's there was enough here. That's what makes it so tantalizing. Oh, what if this was done differently? What if this twist mm-hmm. didn't exist and they did something completely else? Because like, there were there were good bones here, and hey, yeah, that's movies. And you even think about like how much thought Wild put into like certain things about it, like uh, like I was talking about the fact that like because she's in this sedated state, state she's not the one who's like able to do things apparently in real life that happen in there or however it works out like it's very much controlled through him or you even think about the fact that like they never actually like eat any of the food like they're always talking but you never actually right. see them like the, the eggs have no mouth. yolk right and there's and like if you notice her eyes throughout she's like constantly like itching around her eyes as she gets like further oh, and further that. into the state yeah or her eyes are always looking like dry or like open i actually wonder if it's one of those movies that if you watch back like no one actually ever blinks because their eyes are held open yeah. i would once be you know the twist interested i also yeah. don't know this might have just been my theater so I, I wanted to ask you on on my screen it was like lines like these like very faint lines i could see and i wasn't sure if it was my screen i think or that's just your projection just my screen okay yeah that's, that's <laughs> or, no no bueno then the quality of the screen actually not the projection yeah, I, I I wasn't sure if that was something like if you like when they're in the the victory uh for whatever it's called world that they were like having these lines in the background and when they're in real life they're gone. Like I, I mean, could see something like that, you know. I mean, they definitely had something like that when you have those kind of like um, seizure inducing like flashings, visuals popping up, which yeah. is like kind of like your sign that something's not right in Florence Pugh's head. 
you know? And then they take a while to tell you what it actually is. But like right away, you're like, what is this like eyeball thing? What are these, yeah. all these flashing images, you know? So. With Florence Pugh, I was trying to think of this. Does anyone do this kind of like genre better? You know, the like woman in a like weird fucked up situation that's just kind of like uncovering how weird and fucked up it is. You think about her in like hereditary, like one of her like first like breakout performances. Midsommar, you mean? Yeah, sorry. Midsommar, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then in this, obviously, but like she just plays this role so well. Um, I'm just like, she just has something about the way that she portrays herself in these roles where like she has such a good face for like looking tormented or looking like confused i just think she's like incredible in this i don't know she's she's a rocket ship in my book totally and you know we don't have long to wait next year we get to see her in two little movies called dune part two and christopher nolan's oppenheimer nvd what Eh. a beast Two, two small films. Oh, and she's also going to be in a, a movie produced by her. Are they still dating Zach Braff and her? I don't know. No, they're done. Thank God. Oh, they're done. Well, he's producing a, another movie Upgrade. that she's in next year. Yeah. Serious. Oh, who's she with now? I don't think she's with anyone. Good. Be single. Yeah. How also, real quick, uh, this was the reunion of Chris Pine and Florence Pugh after the underrated David McKenzie movie, Outlaw King on Netflix. Great movie. A movie I love. Great movie. We talked about that one. Go check out the review. We did. Yeah, man. Oh, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. And then Dune. Man, what a year that's going to be for her. Good for her. I like her. She's great. Uh, any last thoughts on this? I think that's plenty. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. Anyways, what do we got for next week, Dave? Next week, we're doing our Kendrick Lamar album rankings. We haven't done a ranking in a little bit. But we've done many so far. YouTube.com slash Nostalgia Pod. Kung Fu Kenny released his latest record a few months back. So now it's time to go into all of it. 12 plus years of the mainstream career. Very exciting. So yeah, check that out. And then October's going to get hot with the content. And we'll be getting to a ton of it. So Precarious. YouTube.com slash Nostalgia Pod. Go to Twitter search at Nostalgia Pod and follow the link tree to follow us any way you want to there. Also, I believe in the link tree is our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist on Spotify. It's all so there. Follow that and listen to all the music. TikTok too. Sudan Archives. Oh yeah, hit our TikTok up. We got some, some short breakouts tree. there. So, we'll catch you in a few weeks. Yeah.